0: So I would hope that the realization that we have an even better than expected efficacy signal on two vaccines that will likely already start having distribution of doses, hopefully by the end of December, but certainly no later than in the beginning of January. If we could hang on and implement the public health measures that help is really on the way. You take people who have severe comorbid diseases, those are the ones who are most likely have very serious disease and potentially even die. So we wanted healthcare workers, they're at risk of acquiring the infection and the important role they play in society, uh, the same with other first responders. You know, the goal is to have the whole population or as as much of the whole population as possible vaccinated. But we know that in the beginning there will be scarcity and with scarcity you have to make tough decisions.
1: Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things and the DNA of scientists, companies and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Phyllis Arthur, Bio's Vice President for Infectious Diseases and you're listening to I am Bio. Last, it's the news we've all been waiting for. Last week, Pfizer released an analysis of its coronavirus phase three vaccine trial, 95% effective in preventing COVID-19, even in older adults and no serious safety concerns. Also last week, Moderna released its interim phase three vaccine data. It too showed 95% effectiveness and no serious safety issues. Moderna's vaccine protected both elderly and minority subjects, some of the most at-risk populations, which comprised an impressive 37% of the study participants. This is the reassurance we'd hoped for, that the vaccine would protect the vulnerable, not just the healthy. Dr. Fauci said the effectiveness of the COVID vaccines came as a wonderful surprise. He had hoped for maybe 70 or 75% effectiveness. After all, in a good year, the flu vaccine is about 60% effective at best. So what's the takeaway? The scientific data generated by these large, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies of more than 30,000 people means that emergency use authorization for these two vaccines could be right around the corner. We don't yet know how long the protection will last. But we do know that America is on the precipice of making enormous inroads in protecting our loved ones from this scourge. Vaccine doses are already being manufactured at large scale, and other promising vaccine candidates are right behind in releasing their data. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, with the help of outside experts, are working to finalize the nationwide vaccine strategy. The CDC's goal is to make sure that the most vulnerable populations, including healthcare workers and first responders and those with underlying conditions, are first in line to receive the vaccine. We still could have a long winter ahead of us due to the virus's exponential growth in states across this country. And, of course, that perplexing and deadly refusal of millions to wear a mask even for a few more months. Yet for the first time since this deadly, microscopic enemy hit our shores in January, there is genuine reason for hope. The National Academy of Sciences has released a thoughtful report outlining who should be vaccinated in what order and why. Soon, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will use these recommendations to finalize a plan to vaccinate Americans as fast as doses are available. We still have some work to do to overcome vaccine hesitancy and the politicization of the FDA. But this is indisputably the best news and the best week we've had since COVID began its death march. After 11 months wading through this treacherous tunnel of death and darkness, we can finally see the light. We're thrilled today to have Dr. Helene Gale, who's the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. She is the co-author of an extremely important study recently released by the National Academy of Sciences that relates to the distribution strategy for COVID-19 vaccines. This may be more than just a planning exercise very, very soon. Dr. Gale and her colleagues who worked on this report for the Academy really studied one of the most crucial questions, which is who should get the vaccine first and why? How should we be prioritizing populations? And there's a lot of interesting ground to cover in our discussion. So, Dr. Gale, I want to thank you first for being here and welcome you to I Am Bio.
0: Great. It's my pleasure to be with you today.
1: So I know that after the report was released, you actually testified before the House Energy and Commerce Oversight Committee. And in your testimony, you said the primary goal of the report was really to maximize the societal benefit through reduction of COVID morbidity and mortality. But you also actually spent some time thinking about how to mitigate health inequities, complementary but
0: somewhat different goals. This is one of the first times where we've seen a public health crisis have such a profound economic impact and societal impact at the level that it has. And so, while traditionally you think about a vaccine as only focusing on the health aspect, we also realized we needed to look at the maximum societal benefit as well and recognizing that you know certain professions and certain um, industries have been very, very hard hit. And so we we wanted to give consideration to that. But as you mentioned, at the same time, we also wanted to make sure that it was equitable and that the populations who had been most impacted and most hard hit had the opportunity to um, access vaccines early on in the early phases. And so, you know, we developed a risk framework that looked at the risk of either acquiring or transmitting the infection, the risk of negative societal consequences, and the risk of severe morbidity um, and even mortality. It takes into consideration the very factors that put people at greatest risk. That was one way of correcting for the issue of equity. So we wanted to make sure that when states developed their plans, that they put preference in geographies that had populations that were high on the social vulnerability scale. This is an index that CDC has put together that looks at things like minority status, language status, household composition, social economic factors, transportation, etc., And we know that that would, in some ways, help to mitigate this issue of health inequity in which this pandemic has taken its toll. So there were four phases. I'm going to just summarize them really quickly and then give
1: you the chance to really talk about them in in more detail and particularly how you came up with them. Um, So phase one is frontline health workers, first responders, people in nursing homes, and those with really high-risk comorbid conditions. And phase two is other seniors teachers, those who are in prisons, um, people who live in group homes and homeless shelters, and people with less risky but still significant comorbid conditions. Phase three is children and young adults, and phase four is healthy adults. And and this is a very interesting sort of phasing that you've done, uh, which I think speaks to that intersection of work occupational risk and then um, that underlying health condition risk that could make one either more susceptible to serious consequences or more susceptible to either that or transmitting the disease. Can you talk a
0: little bit how you all came up with the phases? As I mentioned before, we used the risk framework of risk of acquiring, risk of transmitting, risk of severe disease, and risk of negative societal consequences. The first phase are people who have the most risk in most of those categories. And as we move further through the phases, uh, all the way to healthy population, you you have decreasing risk on all of those different risk parameters. The goal is to have the whole population or as, as much of the whole population as possible vaccinated. But we know that in the beginning, there will be scarcity. And with scarcity, you have to make tough decisions. You know, as an example, you take people who have, you know, severe comorbid diseases, those are the ones who are most likely to have very serious disease and potentially even die. So, we wanted and healthcare workers, another example, um, in, in professions where they may be exposed, so they're at risk of acquiring the infection, and the important role they play in society. Uh, The same with other first responders, an important role they play in society, not being available would have a severe negative consequence for our society. So that's how we tried to play with the different risk factors and came up with the phases um, that we felt represented that and also tried to look at, given the scarcity, having sizes uh, of the population in those first phases that were not above what we thought was likely to be the first uh, number of doses available. So we also looked at the population sizes that we were considering, particularly in the early phases. That makes perfect sense. I think there was at first this instinct by
1: everyone to sort of say, oh, let's just parse it out by race. Everyone African-American is first, and then everyone Hispanic is second. And I think there was um some... danger there, the risk of some backlash or people feeling targeted. So I I feel like to some degree, and, and, and please speak to this, that using the approach that you used actually still captures the racial and ethnic issues because of the way you approach the occupations, which tend to be dominated by people of color to some degree, as a way to still have equity and fairness. But make the evidence-based recommendations more around what really places people at risk. Oh, I'm an African-American woman, but I can work from home. And I have two underlying conditions, but I don't need to be first for the vaccine, given I can mitigate. At home, but another woman who looks just like me might be in one of the other risk categories and should go before me.
0: Yeah, you said it so so well. I mean, I think what we tried to do was to really look at the reasons why people are uh, fall into those risk categories. Um, it's not their race; it's the impact of race and racism um, in our society that has put people in in the categories and, and put people at risk. Uh, and so, you know, we tried to. To really focus on what are the underlying reasons why people were at risk, and it's not biology; it's soci it's sociology, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And then I think you know, as as you were alluding to, I think the other aspect of it is you know, black and brown people have been. Used as guinea pigs in um medical experimentation there's his you know there's historic evidence there's his, there 's a history that has led to mistrust and so I think if we had said uh, black and brown people at the front of the line, it might have in fact caused the opposite uh, impact where people would have been skeptical mm-hmm. that this might be uh, asking people to be once again in line first for something that um, all of the evidence wasn't as as uh, clear as it should be. So I think you know we we have a a task on our hand, not just for communities of color, but in general. Uh, in getting people to want to take this vaccine. We know that studies have shown that there's large portions of the population who have said um, that they wouldn't take a vaccine, at least not in the beginning, uh, even once it's available. So we have a lot of work to do on our population in general, but I think particularly for communities of color.
1: We actually found a commencement address that you gave on YouTube, where you told the graduates that there are limits to career planning. Your Exhibit A was that you didn't even learn about HIV when you were in medical school, and yet you wound up spending two decades at the CDC working to fight HIV and AIDS and save lives in that epidemic. Tell us how you ended
0: up at the CDC and what you learned in that fight that's relevant to the COVID crisis. You know, I went into medicine because I wanted to have some way of giving back and having a tangible um, positive impact uh, and and hopefully be able to create positive change. And as I was in my training and focusing on individual patient care, I saw so many patients who I realized, you know, the reason that they came in and out of my um, clinic was less about specific diseases and more about the overall way in which their um, lives uh, operate you know, and, and the systems that we have to support people to have healthy lives. And so I started really thinking about, you know, um, this notion of going from the patient as an individual to the patient as a community or or a nation or sometimes even a world when we look at global pandemics and, um, you know, kind of stumbled into the notion of public health, which is medicine uh, practice at, at a societal level, if you will. Um, I went to the CDC because it has a excellent training program for people who want to get experience in public health, the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Uh, I went there uh, for that two-year training program and stayed 20. I had not had a lot of experience with HIV beforehand, but you know, quickly realized that it was going to be the defining public health issue of our time. And uh, so it took me on a fascinating journey, learned a lot. And as you mentioned, you know, I think a lot of the things that we saw um, during the HIV pandemic are relevant for today. It disproportionately impacted uh, people who were um, vulnerable, uh, socially marginalized, um, living in, in uh, poor conditions here as well as around the world, people whose social status um, put them in more vulnerable positions. And I think it really helped um, as a result of that. We learned a lot with, in the HIV pandemic how to actually develop relationships with the communities that are at greatest risk and how to f- develop solutions that were relevant to the lives. Uh, Of people who were at risk for HIV. Similarly, I think um, we're we're taking those lessons and some people relearning those lessons about how to really um, build those bridges and build those solutions that make a difference for those most impacted by this current pandemic.
1: As the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, your mission seems to be to help close the racial wealth gap. And since March, you've raised over $35 million to provide emergency food, cash assistance, housing, really keeping thousands of families afloat. Can you talk about the economic and public
0: health realities you're seeing on the ground in Chicago during this pandemic? There are a lot of challenges here. Um, We have one of the largest life expectancy gaps, 30 years, um, between rich neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods here. We have a huge issue of violence. We have lack of access to quality education across the city. And so, you know, you could go on and on and on. But, you know, we recognize that underneath all of those issues, including the life expectancy gap, if you look at kind of a social determinants of health model, economics plays a huge role in this. And whether or not people have jobs, whether they have access to nutritious food, whether their neighborhoods are safe, et cetera, All of that is very pinned to this um, wealth gap that we see uh, not only here, but across the nation. Um, and here, it just like so many other places, it is linked to a history of racial segregation, discrimination, and poor policies that um, put economic obstacles um, in the path of Black and brown citizens. So we decided that this would be where we could have our greatest and most sustained impact, and then COVID hit. And clearly the impact that COVID is having on black and brown communities here um, and is mirrored around the rest of the country um, highlighted the importance of the path we had already taken. And so, as you mentioned, we quickly launched a response fund, raised $35 million, and was able to distribute those dollars rapidly Uh, for basic needs like food, shelter, cash, so people could pay their bills. But then we also recognize that, you know, while the emergency response was incredibly important, the long-term recovery work was also something that we felt um, strongly that we needed to contribute to. And so we've now launched a, a fund and an initiative focused on equitable recovery because, You know, if you look back to the recession of 2008, 2009, many of the communities that were economically fragile going into that recession never truly recovered. And so we're focused on making sure that this time it's different that communities that went into this economically fragile are not further left behind. You really call out one of the most important things that everyone's been discussing, which is um, this
1: difference between equity and equality and the fact that there were people who didn't recover the first time. And then the pandemic comes and suddenly they're digging out of a hole that's twice as deep as the hole they were already in. Can you talk about the link between this economic issue and the groups that are the greatest risk for COVID 19.
0: So many of the populations that have been hard hit by COVID um, are at risk because of um, broader social and economic issues. You know, it's people who are working the jobs that put them at risk, people who have pre existing conditions because of lack of access to health services or the other social determinants of health that that uh, really determine people's health outcomes. So that was a big focus of ours when we thought about how to come up with the vaccine uh, strategy, making sure that we were taking those risks into consideration and thinking about how we mitigate that.
1: Can you actually take a moment and define equity versus equality? I think this is one of those things that it's always good for people to talk about as we try to socialize this word equity across
0: the across the language we're all using right now. Equity is about giving people what they need so that they can be equal. You know, and if we have a society where populations have been disproportionately left out of opportunity, then we can't just spread things around equally and think that it will meet the needs of populations where there's been huge inequity. And so if you look at equity, it's really about giving people what they need to be able to have equal opportunity and not just spreading things around equally to all. Exactly. Uh, This is really why you're
1: such a great person to co-chair the work on this particular academy's report. Can you just share with the listeners for a moment, who asked for the report and why did they ask for it?
0: Well, the report was sponsored by the NIH and the CDC, and they came to the academies because the academies are known for being able to put out fact-based, independent um, opinions and studies on, on key issues. And so, We were asked by those two agencies, understanding that um, we wanted to be prepared when a vaccine was available and how important it was to have a framework in place to guide the distribution um, of vaccines once they became available.
1: So today, Monday the 23rd, is a very important meeting of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or the ACIP. How would you like them to leverage the National Academy study as they finalize the ACIP recommendations framework?
0: Well, you know, when we did the um, study, we obviously were doing that without a actual vaccine candidate, um, and now hopefully, when ACIP makes its recommendation, there's there's a bit more information about um the at least the two potential uh, vaccines that hopefully will will get emergency use authorization before too long so they can be more specific about their guidelines we know that they have paid attention to the work um they attended our sessions and i think that they very much will use this as as a foundation as they develop uh, in more specificity their guidelines to cdc
1: Let me turn to something personal at the end. So you talked about vaccine hesitancy and and the fact that we have a long way to go in helping people understand, you know, these vaccines and deal with some of the historical issues in not just the Black community, but other communities as well um, on accepting the vaccine. If your family's like mine, and and again, I I have an African-American family with lots of different ages, some family members are probably expressing reservations and they're talking to you. You're a doctor, you're obviously involved in this. How are you talking to your family and how would you recommend that those of us who feel positive about the vaccine talk to our families about the vaccine and its importance and how they should think about it?
0: Well, you know, I think that it's important that people get the information, realize, understand the scientific process. I do think that the confusing messages around when a vaccine will be available, um, whether or not there was or could have been um, interference with the scientific process. All of those things, I think, have made people skeptical. And I think that there's really a job to be done to be able to provide information in a clear, transparent, evidence-based way so that people uh, across the spectrum can have confidence in this vaccine. My very best friend um, that I grew up with is a pediatrician who works in the uh, clinical research arena. Uh, She has told me several times, and this is a scientifically trained person who's doing clinical trials work. She said, you know, I'm not so sure that I want to take that vaccine um, when it becomes available. So, you know, we've got an uphill battle in terms of making this information transparent Developing the trust and confidence in our institutions once to, once again, so that people can trust that what comes out is um, has been gone through the routine ways in which we conduct science, so that there is no concern about whether or not these vaccines um, are ready for human consumption. You know, it's one thing to have a vaccine. It's another thing to have people vaccinated. <laughs> exactly. That's the goal that we want is to get people vaccinated. Building trust and rebuilding trust is going to be a huge part of that. Well
1: said. Actually, you give me hope because I think the way you describe these issues is so clear. And we as people who believe in the science and vaccines just really need to follow that pathway that you just laid out. Thank you for the work that the Academy did on this report. It's extraordinarily helpful. It's clear. And it really gets at the equity issue, the social justice issue from an evidence-based perspective Um, and done in record time. uh, That's an incredible feat of work as well. Um, So thank you for that. And of course, thank you for the work that you do in Chicago with your organization. It's so important to the lives that you help. Thank you. My pleasure. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about our work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit imbio.org. On our next episode, we'll turn the conversation from vaccines to treatments. Our guest will be Eli Lilly's Vice President of Immunology. He'll talk about the FDA's emergency use authorization for Lilly's neutralizing antibody infusion for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults and children over 12. With cases spiking and widespread vaccine availability still months away, this potentially life-saving treatment is coming just in time. We're innovating to save lives for COVID patients around the world right now. Learn more about it on next Monday's I Am Bio.